Hello, I'm Jenny Schwindeman, a member of the Littler Mendelssohn Pro Bono Committee. In conjunction with the American Bar Association's celebration of Pro Bono Week, Littler is pleased to present this podcast, which is dedicated to bringing attention to one of the most significant humanitarian challenges that is currently facing the United States, homelessness. Joining us today are members of the National Homelessness Law Center, Katie Myers-Scott, Director of Ending Youth Homelessness, and Carlton Martin, Pro Bono Director. Welcome to the podcast, Katie and Carlton. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Katie, I think members of the listening audience may not be familiar with NHLC. Can you briefly describe what the center does and what their mission is? Absolutely. So the National Homelessness Law Center is essentially the legal arm of the movement to end homelessness. And we do that in a variety of ways. One way is through impact litigation to protect the rights of homeless people. Another way that we do that is through systemic advocacy. And so that might be on a state level, local level, federal level to try to block efforts to criminalize people for being unhoused and to expand access to housing and services to end and prevent homelessness. Another thing we do a lot of is educating people. So educating advocates, service providers, and people experiencing homelessness themselves about the rights that they may have that they might not be aware of, whether that be on a state or federal level. And then we also educate around the best practices in ending and preventing homelessness via the law. The law center has been around for a long time. Our founding director was very involved with some of the most significant federal legislation around homelessness, the McKinney-Vento Act. Carlton, it's, it's likely and it's unfortunate that probably many members of our audience have at some point in time been at a stoplight or an intersection. Perhaps they've been exiting a highway when they've seen an unfortunate individual, uh, sometimes even a family maybe, someone who has indicated that they are homeless by asking for money with a sign. It's always very sobering to me to think about how this person, this individual, or even this family came to be in this situation and came to be without shelter. Absolutely. I think I would like your audience to think about the reasons that come to mind that they've heard in uh, media or from various you know, other sources about why a person becomes homeless. You would think, it's because of substance abuse or mental health issues. And that's a part of it. But then the question you have to ask there is, did the substance abuse or the mental health issue cause the homelessness and drive them into the homelessness? Or was it exasperated by their condition of being homeless? That's not the primary cause of homelessness. I would like to say, point people's attention to, right, the 10 cities that are most impacted by homelessness. Los Angeles, New York City, Seattle, San Francisco, Sacramento, Phoenix, San Diego, Metropolitan Denver. Can one afford a home there, afford rent there? These are the cities with the largest homelessness population, the lack of affordable housing. That didn't happen overnight. It did not happen by accident. It was caused by policy decisions over the course of time. We would argue bad policy decisions. And and it's just simply not enough housing options and availability for those uh, to be able to access it. And so that's the primary cause. 
everything, hey, everything is expensive now. Wages aren't going up. The wages are still the same and everything is going up and housing is included in that. And Carlton, when we talk about the lack of affordable housing, that affects all generations, right? You may have an elderly population who may be facing homelessness just as frequently as you have veterans or families or single individuals as well. There's not any age limit associated with a person who could be homeless at any time. Is that right? It's everybody. So the, the image of the person who was homeless, if you would ask them 30 years ago, you would think of somebody who's, you know, has an alcohol problem, long, shaggy hair, probably male, reeking of alcohol, whatever, you know, whatever. That's the image that you would see now. But now you see people that look like Katie, like you, like me. They could be well-dressed. They might have a job. They might look like they're going to church. It affects everybody. Because I think it's around like 500,000 plus folks that are considered almost on any given night in America. But there are many who would say that it's double that. In fact, you look at the Department of Education, its numbers, they, they, they have about 1.3 million children who are homeless in any given year. Carlton, those are just devastating numbers. I know that the NHLC has been involved in some very important litigation that has impacted homelessness in the United States and was directed at improving the rights of the homeless population and hoping to decrease some of these numbers that you just shared with us. Can you tell us more about those cases? Oh, absolutely. Martin v. Boise was a landmark victory at the time, and we, we still are very positive about Martin v. Boise. In that case, homeless people in Boise, Idaho, were being arrested for sleeping outdoors, receiving fines and fees, but they were receiving criminal penalties essentially for being outside. And at the time, the city of Boise did not have adequate space to house these individuals, right, or to shelter these individuals, not even temporarily. And so in this landmark case, what the Ninth Circuit held was there are constitutional protections, particularly under the Eighth Amendment, that against arresting unhoused people when there are no housing alternatives available. The other case that's maybe lesser known, but I think is particularly impactful for the law center is a case called A.E. versus Harlington. It's a, it's a case out of Pennsylvania. And that holding ultimately, it protected the rights of over 38,000 unhoused youths by allowing homeless families to establish residency in a district where they have a substantial connection. The people who are homeless are very transient. And so when you're talking about education, you know, if you have people in school, if you have kids that go to school, you're in a district, there's all kinds of rules about that, right? And so when you are constantly moving around, we need a ruling like this that will allow these children to enroll in the school district where they need to, where they are housed at that particular moment. Absolutely. They are landmark decisions that really impact an individual that could face homelessness at any time. Katie, I first became familiar with NHLC through LFAA, the law firm Anti-Racism Alliance. That was the first opportunity I had to learn about the organization and contact you to see if there was any way that Littler could be involved with some of your volunteer efforts. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the projects that Littler has partnered with NHLC on? Absolutely. So... You know, one thing that we are focused on, particularly at the youth team at the Law Center, 
is looking at those situations where the youth who are under 18 and dealing with homelessness might face interactions with law enforcement, interactions which could be dangerous for them, which could create records that are problematic for them in the future, separation from their families and from their schools and their communities if they end up being detained for these types of offenses. And so one thing that we were looking at was the curfew laws in Baltimore, which are really sort of strict when you look at curfews across the country. Baltimore essentially has not only a nighttime curfew, but also a daytime curfew with the idea that they're going to somehow catch youth who are not in school. And so sort of giving law enforcement in Baltimore the excuse to stop anyone who looks like they're under the age of 18 and not in school or out past 9 or 10 p.m. at night. We asked the team at Littler to look into the constitutional issues around curfew laws. And does the fact that someone is under the age of 18 mean that they don't have some of the constitutional rights that adults have? This memorandum was that, that Littler put together was really helpful to us because it gave us a chance to sort of engage with not only the advocates on the ground who were looking for this information, but also city government. And what's interesting is so Baltimore, the way they landed is they haven't changed their their curfew times, but they committed to a non-police and non-punitive enforcement of that curfew. So essentially, it's social workers who are enforcing curfew. There's not a juvenile record or detention that's going to happen or being out past curfew. Youth are offered rides home or to safe places. There's a lot of like community kind of programs that are going on, especially in the summer in Baltimore right now, where youth have the option to to go and hang out until they can get picked up. In general, homeless youth are supposed to be exempt from curfew law. So we're kind of in a wait and see situation there. But that sounds like a step in the right direction, right? We're tentatively <laughs> pleased with that result, and we're, we're going to keep an eye on it. The other issue that Littler has been actually currently, I think, helping with is a really interesting sort of women-led nonprofit organization in New York City that helps monitor source of income discrimination. So sort of a whole different kind of issue, but one that is really important and impactful for people that are trying to find housing. New York City has a variety of different like housing voucher programs, but these vouchers aren't going to prevent or end homelessness if people can't actually use those vouchers to get apartments. This organization has sort of developed a system where people can report source of income discrimination, like that they were essentially told maybe straight out that they, the landlord doesn't accept vouchers, or when the landlord knew how much the voucher was, suddenly the rent is like a little more expensive than the voucher. And Littler is now helping to make sure that this nonprofit is able to present their findings about the property management companies, the ones that are violating these source of income protections, and just making sure that the nonprofit is sort of prepared to present that information, that they will be protected when they present that information which will hopefully lead to some change and some monitoring of these companies that are violating the law. Well, I know for a fact that in speaking with both the Baltimore and the New York teams, that the, they have found the work to be very rewarding. Thank you for presenting that opportunity for our Littler attorneys to become involved in such meaningful work. Katie, outside of being homeless and not having a permanent shelter, 
Can you talk about some of the other legal challenges that face the homeless population? In particular, some of the challenges that happen after a sweep may come through a particular area within a city or a municipality. Absolutely. People lose their identification documents. People lose the contact information for their social worker, meaning that maybe they miss deadlines to apply for services that they are entitled to or have the inability to move forward and get themselves on a public housing waiting list if they don't have the proper ID documents. So there's a lot of collateral issues that come from people losing their property through these sweeps. Just the fact if you end up with a criminal record from your time when you were homeless for whatever it might be, trespassing, public urination, whatever it could be, you end up with a criminal record that often can be the thing that prevents you from getting into housing or employment in the future. Another issue is for youth, particularly that we are often dealing with is just from their minority status, like being under the age of 18, can they even access the kind of services that adults could? Can they consent on their own to even be in a homeless shelter or to access some of those services? Some states do not allow it or would only allow it for up to like 72 hours. And then at that point, either the youth needs to get permission of a parent or guardian to stay at the shelter, which may be completely impossible for that youth, whether it's abuse issues why youth left the home or parents to have died or are incarcerated and or to sort of get engaged with the child welfare system. But oftentimes states have policies where the child welfare system won't even open a case for a youth who's 15, 16, or 17 years old. It's just deprioritized and sort of an overwhelmed system, basically leaving a youth in limbo. They can't stay at the shelter. They can't go home where there is no home. Where are they supposed to go? They end up being on the streets. And we do have data that shows that youth under 18 who are homeless can spend up to two years on the streets before they're able to actually get into any kind of transitional housing program. Sometimes they literally just have to wait until they're 18 before they can start moving forward with trying to access some of these services. The other thing I'll mention, we also look at young adult homelessness. We talked a little bit about numbers earlier. Some of the best studies are coming right now out of Chapin Hall at the University of Chicago. And they've estimated through their studies that one in 10 18 to 25 year olds experience some form of homelessness in the course of a year. And that age group, we also know, is the age group that is most likely to be in poverty. There is not a lot of social programs for single adults who are not disabled or who don't have children. They're even excluded from getting the earned income tax credit. So it's just sort of a population, this like transition age population that is really struggling. 50% of people who are homeless experience their first bout of homelessness before the age of 22. So how can we prevent that first bout of homelessness that then creates all these other collateral consequences going forward? And it sounds like there's a lot of research being done, which is great to hopefully bring more of this information to the forefront so more people can be aware and want to try to help and get involved. And speaking of help, I think we can wrap things up by perhaps getting a little information about how any of our attorneys or members of the listening audience who are interested in becoming involved with NHLC go about doing that. No, absolutely. Even just referencing the cases from before, we were co-counsel with our pro bono community, our, our pro bono network. So those are just an example of the types of matters that one can get involved with. 
our, our pro bono partners dedicate millions of in-kind hours, you know, every, every single year. And so we're very grateful for not just uh, attorneys here, but, um, you know, just attorneys in our, in our entire network. You can get involved in a number of ways, you know, continue to monitor our alerts as they, as they come out. Check out our website, homelesslaw.org. One cool opportunity that you can see like, individually, not necessarily as an organization, but it, you can sign on to our uh, our campaign of Housing Not Handcuffs, which is the campaign that we have running. And that's just really just a pledge. And that pledge is, serves a number of important uses for, for our organization. And so that's just very simple. That's the simplest, easiest way. Just sign on to the pledge and say that you support the Housing Not Handcuffs policies. I want to thank you again, Katie and Carlton, for joining us today. This is a very important topic that impacts not only large metropolitan areas in the United States, but even smaller cities. Katie and Carlton, I'm very grateful for you both taking the time to share with our audience the wonderful work that the National Homelessness Law Center is doing to help remedy this very real problem facing so many Americans today. The information you provided will hopefully motivate members of our listening audience to find ways to become involved with either your organization or their own local community groups that are working to end homelessness. This is the last episode of the Littler Mendelssohn 2023 Celebrate Pro Bono Week podcast series. Our programming this year was dedicated to shedding the light on the many ways lawyers can help others who are in need of legal services but unable to afford a lawyer. The Littler Mendelssohn Pro Bono Committee honors and celebrates not just our attorney volunteers, but all lawyers who contribute their time and talents in assisting individuals, families, and nonprofit groups. There are many ways to become involved in pro bono work. State and local bar associations and local legal service groups are always a great place to look for volunteer opportunities. If you're at Littler and interested in becoming involved in pro bono work, please contact a member of the pro bono committee. We also look forward to collaborating with our clients on pro bono projects. This year, the ABA's theme for Pro Bono Week was Voices of Democracy, Ensuring Justice for All. It is our hope that after hearing some stories shared during the podcast series, that more attorneys will take up the call and be a voice for democracy. As lawyers, we have the privilege and the responsibility to use our voices and help ensure that there is justice for all. Thank you again for listening. 